1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16 this morning. And the question I have is, what kind of person is worthy to lead us? What kind of person is fit to lead us? We, have, uh, in, we are in the midst of a cultural moment of hypervigilance around this question. Because we've been in this season that's been longer than a year where about every other time we turn on our TV, we find out about somebody in, in the public eye in business, in entertainment, in government, that has some sort of sordid past, some dark secret that comes to light that disqualifies them from leading. When we hear of celebrities paying large sums of money to get their kids into well-known colleges, when we hear of yet another cabinet-level official resigning due to impropriety, when we hear of yet another pastor leaving the ministry, this has been a banner year the last year and a half. Some of America's best-known pastors have left ministry. When we hear these failings, we are almost not surprised anymore. And in the wake of so many failures, in the wake of so many secrets revealed, we can't help but ask, what kind of person is worthy to lead this? We have not asked this question so like, urgently and so often as a country since the Clinton administration. Right now, 766 people have filed to run for president of the United States. We got to watch on TV like you know, two dozen of them smack each other back and forth in the Democratic primary debates. What kind of person is worthy to lead us? It's an important question to ask when we look to our nation. It's even more pressing when we look to the Jesus people, when we look to us. We who are responsible for bringing God's blessing to all the nations, what kind of person is worthy of leading us? Is the question at the very core of 1 Samuel, especially here today, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Just as a reminder, the purpose of the book of Samuel is that despite their outright rejection of his kingship, the Lord still seeks to be the king of his people's hearts, to move his redemptive purposes forward. God opposes Saul and David in their pride, but when David humbles himself, the Lord exalts him. The book stirs us, invites us to look forward to the messianic king, Jesus, who will bring God's kingdoms and blessing to all the nations. We're in this segment of the book, this 8 through 31, where Israel has asked for a king. They were given Saul. We saw Saul, if you can call it, have a rise. He rose to power. As soon as he gets there, he falls apart. And now, here in 1 Samuel 16, we meet Israel's next king, who in chapter 13, we learned, is someone after God's own heart, 1 Samuel chapter 16. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, the, the chapter itself is structured, the language is used to cause us to slow down and to pay attention, and I want us to do that together this morning. So 1 Samuel 16 says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how could I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And Yahweh said, take a heifer, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? 
And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab. He's looking at Jesse's sons. He looked on Eliam and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as a man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Verse 14, this is when it gets interesting. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit, some of your translations say evil spirit, from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, behold, they keep saying behold, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skilled in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his servants, his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my servants, service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed, and all was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, our question this morning has to do with what kind of person is worthy of leading us. However, if you read that passage, the thing that caught your attention isn't so much, oh, it must be David. The thing that caught your attention is this little phrase, a harmful or evil, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. A harmful spirit tormented Saul. A few, maybe about six or eight months ago, someone in our community called me and said, hey, I'm discipling this younger believer. They're reading through the Bible. I mean, God bless them. They started in Genesis and made it to 1 Samuel. Like, if you can make it through Leviticus and Numbers, like, then, you know, you get to, you're almost there. You get to 1 Samuel, and now you're caught, right? And uh, he said he got to this part in 1 Samuel 16, and it says, the Lord sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. What does it mean? That's a problem, right? If God is good, if God is kind, if God is a good father, what business does he have sending an evil spirit to torment somebody? 
I was talking yesterday with someone from Grace Campus uh, who is like the sweetest person. She would kill me for telling you this. Like, I think she might be an angel. Like, I've never actually seen her sin. So, like, I think she might not be a human. And um, she said to me, oh, I can't wait to hear you talk about that because I have a big question mark next to that verse in my Bible. And this is the Bible that I actually read through when I was at Moody when I was at Bible college. And it's got a lot of notes because it's got like an inch margin. And lo and behold... I opened my Bible this morning, and there next to verse 14 is my own question mark, right? So what in the heck is happening here in 1 Samuel 16? I want to stop and talk about this and get into the nitty-gritty and hopefully blow your mind a little bit, as mine has been similarly blown over the last three days as I've been studying this, and then we'll kind of move to the rest of it. And again, it's this phrase, it's this phrase, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. When you come to a difficult passage of Scripture, which is where we're at, and there are a lot of them, the answer is not, let me throw up my hands and say, well, I'll never understand that. That's what we need professionals for. There's some really simple ways where you can kind of get into this and begin to get your hands around what's going on. And one of the things to do when you find yourself in a difficult passage of scripture is to stop and slow down and start by looking at the context. The context is what comes before and what comes after. So what we've seen in 1 Samuel 16 at this point, the context is this. The Holy Spirit has rushed upon David and in doing so has departed from Saul. We talked about this a few weeks ago that the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is given to a specific person for a specific purpose for a specific period of time. Saul was given the Holy Spirit and his function as the anointed king. But in 1 Samuel 15, the Lord rejected Saul as king, and he's still crowned, he still sits on the throne, but he is going to begin to unravel. And as the Holy Spirit just leaves Saul as part of his rejection and rushes on David, it's almost like the Lord's protective hand comes off of Saul And now he is tormented by this evil spirit. So there's your context. Doesn't really help us a lot. So the next thing that you want to do when you find a difficult passage in Scripture is, is there somewhere else that something like this has happened? It's ideal to look for the specific word in other places. So have we seen the Lord send spirits in other places, particularly in the Old Testament? And the answer to that is yes. Um, In Judges chapter 9... Judges chapter 9, it speaks of Abimelech, who is a foreign king, ruling over Israel for three years, and it says that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. I don't want to go into the context of that as much as I want to do the next one, but there we see this is something that God has done before, and in a matter of fact, God does it again. Note that uh, the screen says 1 Kings 20, it's actually 1 Kings 22. So if you're following along in your Bible, you'll want to know that it's 1 Kings 22. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab? Ahab, one of the northern kingdom's worst kings. So the Lord is about to punish him. Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? In other words, who would like to go and make Saul lose at war? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? How are you going to do it? And he said, I will go out. 
and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed, lying spirit. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. What on earth is happening here? The Old Testament in particular pictures Yahweh as chief of a divine council. Imagine a king sitting on a throne. He would have people in his court to whom he delegates authority to accomplish his purposes. The president has a chief of staff, has communications directors, has a press secretary. I know this because I've watched The West Wing and it's my favorite show. And if I could have a small group of any group of people ever, it would be the president's staff in the West Wing. I want them to be my people. I have watched the show through like eight times. It is kind of a little bit of an unhealthy thing. We'll get into that later. Anyway, in the West Wing, the president delegates his authority to other people. And this is how we see the Lord operating in Scripture. The Lord is chief among all of these other celestial beings to whom he delegates authority. Uh, Psalm 90, where you say Psalm 90 or 91, says um, uh, that he will command his angels concerning you, that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Uh, Another one of the Psalms says, like, listen, all ye angels uh, who hear the Lord's commands. Remember that uh, Samuel reveals the Lord to be the Lord of hosts, okay? The Lord sits in the midst of a divine council. We actually see the divine council, too, in Job, when uh, they're talking about how great this guy Job is, and Ha-Satan, the accuser, the Satan, steps forward and says, I will tempt Job, and let's see how faithful he really is. So here is the Lord in the midst of this divine council in 1 Kings, and it has come time to bring judgment upon King Ahab, and there's some discussion in the heavenly council. One said one thing, one said another, and finally one spirit stepped forward and said, I will go. The Lord said, well, how are you going to do it? He said, I will be a lying spirit. And do you notice the Lord says, that sounds like a good idea. Go, lie, and you will have success. This raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? About the goodness of God. What is the nature of this spirit? How is it that God can do this? I want us to see and step into the worldview of the Bible that speaks accurately to what's happening now. Because here's the deal. From a purely psychological perspective, at this moment on, Saul starts to go mad. He's going crazy. And, and, and modern readers of the Bible would say, oh, he's having a psychological break, right? There's, there's counselors and mental health professionals in our midst. Like, he's having a mental break. And that's normal, but they just didn't know the words mental break, you know, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. So the way they described it was a spirit of the Lord and da 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 and then they move on. But to see this as only psychological and to miss the spiritual underpinnings is a huge error. So I want to slow down the action on the play a little bit if I can and get us into the worldview of the Bible and hopefully explain how God retains his goodness and also to show you that we are in a very different world because here's what we actually see in Scripture. We see God delegating his authority and his purposes into the hands of celestial and terrestrial beings. 
terrestrial. So he's going to use David to accomplish his purpose. He's going to use Moses to accomplish his purposes. Good news. He uses you and I to accomplish his purposes. He shares his authority with us. He self-limits and gives his authority to us. He self-limits and gives his authority to a giant fish in the book of Jonah who swallows up uh, who swallows up the prophet. He gives, he gives some of his authority to a large fig tree that uh, grows over Jonah and then withers. He's constantly, we're comfortable with this idea of him giving authority to terrestrial beings. It's this idea that he would share his authority with celestial beings, spiritual beings, that is a little more interesting for us. So we need to step into the world of the Bible a little bit. And let me see if I can do it this way as we kind of answer three questions. So first of all, one of the things I want to help you see is the worldview of the Bible. I want to help you see the worldview of the Bible. Uh, Greg Boyd, in his book, God at War, says that the Bible, from beginning to end, presupposes spiritual beings who exist between humanity and God and whose behavior significantly affects human existence for better or for worse. Uh, Greg Boyd calls this a warfare worldview, that right now there's a, a, a battle being fought uh, between the forces of light and forces of darkness, and we are kind of in that crossfire at times, and that these spiritual beings that exist between us and God who carry out his purposes uh, can affect human existence. We see that happening here for Saul. We see a spiritual being affecting Saul's existence. We see him affected by this. But it's not just any kind of spiritual being. It is an evil or harmful spirit. The Hebrew word for that is ra. The Hebrew word for that is ra. And in Genesis, uh, I will set before you good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra. Ra, it's used 75 times in the Old Testament. It has meanings that range from displeasing, injurious, bad, or evil. Interestingly, God is the subject of the verb ra a lot. God does evil, Scripture says. Also, angels, spiritual beings, are the subject of the verb ra. In Psalm 78, verse 49, the text says, He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying, a company of ra angels. What we see in this word in particular, commentators would say, the word ra, because it's in the form of an adjective, does not speak to the essence of the spirit. It speaks to the result of its action. It does not speak to the nature or essence of that spirit. It speaks to its action. Which is why my proposal to you this morning is that it is not a demon who is tormenting Saul. It is an angel tormenting Saul. Okay, let's just keep going. It keeps going. How is that possible? How is that possible? An evil spirit, it is an adjective describing its behavior, it, the result of its actions, not its essence. God is the subject of the verb uh, a handful of times. See, the heart, see, this is the part I was talking about. The use of the word raw describes not the essence of the spirit, but the result of its action. It doesn't speak to the identity, but its actions. I want to go back to this idea that God is the subject of the verb form of raw because that can be a problem for us. So what we see is God, through an angel, doing raw, doing something harmful to 
one of his people, okay? That causes some problems for us. How is God good in that? Well, God is uh, the subject of the verb raw in Psalm 44, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 31, Micah 4, and Zechariah 8. And what is key is that when God does Ra, when God does evil, it is always in response to Ra. When God does evil, it is always in response to evil. It is God exercising judgment. It is God exercising judgment. So what we see here is Saul, who has done Ra. I can't remember if it's in 13 or 15. That's the exact word that Samuel accused him. He says, you have done Ra. The Lord cannot let sin go unpunished and unatoned for. He won't. Uh, we have this line that we say, um, we have this line that we say, God can't be in the presence of sin. I don't think that's true because he's in, my, in the midst of us right now and we're sinful. Um, I think it's better to say that God can't tolerate unpunished sin, unatoned for sin. And so knowing that, he sees Saul do raw and he exercises judgment on Saul because he's just. God does not let the guilty go unpunished, the Exodus says. And so God through an agent, through a spiritual being, uh, exercises judgment on Saul for his wrongdoing. And he manages to do this without any negative effects on God's moral agency. Uh, Greg Boyd says, let me take you back to this, that the Lord can at times use the evil intentions of malicious spirits to his own end, that Yahweh can use evil spirits, but they do not in any way suggest that Yahweh is himself evil because he's operating through agency. He maintains his moral goodness. And as another note, God is only good if he does in fact let sin, does not let sin go unpunished. When God exercises judgment and wrath towards sin, that is a function of his goodness. Think about that for a second. A good God does not let the atrocities of the world go unpunished. So a good God in the right time exercises judgment to bring all things right again. And in this micro case, the Lord is doing that. And in all three of those passages where the Lord sends a spirit in the Old Testament and judges Samuel and Kings, it is all to exercise judgment against someone who's done raw. Uh, Paul in Romans 1 would say that Saul is receiving in himself due penalty for his error. Saul is receiving in himself due penalty for his error. So what is your takeaway this morning? It is not that if you do bad, God will send a spirit. And here's the deal. If you want to tell me that it's a demon, you can. The Bible is unclear on this. We were at my wife's parents' church this last weekend, uh, last two weekends. The guy was preaching a pretty good sermon on baptism, and he said, like, the Bible is clear like a dozen times. And I was like, the problem is that the Bible is clear on very few things. The Bible is absolutely unclear on whether this is an angel or a demon. So if you want to arm wrestle me, you can. What the Bible is saying is that, the God's, that God sent a spiritual being whose presence on Saul tormented him, caused him to go into madness. And that is an act of God's justice and judgment on Saul's wrongdoing. He is receiving in himself due penalty for his error. So the, so the takeaway isn't be good so that God doesn't send an angel or a demon to torment you. If you have claimed the name of Jesus, you are under the covering of his gracious protection. Okay? You are under the covering of God's gracious protection. The takeaway is that God does not let our sin go unpunished. And the good news of Jesus is that he has taken the punishment that we rightly deserved. He has taken the weight 
of God's wrath toward our sin on himself so that we can walk in freedom. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, those of us that have friends and family that are far from Jesus, you in the presence of my voice who are, are, are in the midst of, who are yet to place your face in Jesus, you are in our midst and I'm glad you're here. The reason that we so passionately want you to follow Jesus and to place your faith in him is not so that we can get you to vote our way in the next election. It's not so that we can have more people to buy our products. The reason that we want you to be under Jesus' protection is because you are right now caught in the midst of a crossfire that is dangerous to your soul. This is why Jesus, 1 John says, he came to destroy the works of the devil, right? He's in that process now. We are under his covering. Um, been thinking a lot about this. We're going to probably preach through the book of Colossians this fall, partially because it's one of Paul's best explanations of the principalities, powers, and authorities. Um, super interesting. Um, this is why we preach the gospel. This is why we proclaim the gospel. But thanks be to God that we are not under his judgment. We are under grace. Romans 6.14 says, for we are not under the law, we are under grace, which is good news. And the point of this, long explanation, okay, well, it's noon, good. Um, I haven't preached for a couple weeks, so you're just going to be here longer and you need to deal with that. Um, If you walk away feeling smarter, but your obedience doesn't match it, you've missed the point. Listen, I studied this in depth, and it was edifying to me, it was encouraging to me, it caused there to be spiritual growth in my soul, however... I want my obedience to outpace my knowledge. I want my obedience to outpace my knowledge. So let's look at 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 5 very quickly. Getting back to this question of, getting back to this question of, who is worthy to lead us? The Lord said to Samuel, verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Here's, this one's free. Some of you are grieving the loss of something that you need to stop grieving. Okay, you're holding on to something that the Lord has been saying, let go of for a long time. Time to move on. Move Moveon.org. Fill your horn with oil. Go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Jesse's grandmother is Ruth, who we preached about a couple Christmases ago. I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how could I go if he hears that the king will kill me? Notice that the king and the prophet are not just at distance anymore. They are at odds. Samuel worries about about his life. And interesting, the Lord gives him a cover. The Lord says, well, take a heifer. And, And the sacrifice that he's setting Samuel up to do is the sacrifice that you did in a rural region with an unsolved murder. So the Lord says, take a heifer. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, and then he says, come and say, I have a sacrifice to the Lord. He would make that sacrifice. They would eat the vast majority of the animals, so there would be a feast. They, uh, the elders of the village come out trembling. Why do they come out trembling? Well, either they don't want to be like, they don't want Saul to think they're on Samuel's side, or it's because, you know, in 1 Samuel 15, it says the Lord, uh, he, it says Samuel hacked Agag, king of the Philistines, to pieces in the presence of the Lord. They're like, are, are we next? Um, so they, they, he comes out and, and he says, no, I come peaceably. He says to Jesse, go get your boys. We're going to have this feast. They sit down to have this feast. And in quick succession, we find that David is God's chosen, chosen king. Remember, we, we've seen this idea that there are, I'm sorry, guys, I'm trying to make this work, that there are four elements that make up a king. There's anointing, there's choice, 
gift of the spirit, empowerment for office, and we see all of these signs setting up David to be the king. He's chosen to be the king, right? Because the Lord says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. He's anointed. He's anointed. It's a funny story because he gets there. And, and, and Jesse, I, I don't know, I can't picture this in my mind entirely, but Jesse like parades in front of Samuel, every one of his kids. And the first one, the oldest, comes out. And in verse, seven, in verse six and seven, it says, the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on Eliab's appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. See, the last king was tall and good looking, Saul. So Samuel sees another tall and good-looking king and goes, well, that must be him. And the Lord's like, would you stop it? The Lord does not look at what you're looking at. And so one by one, the sons pass in front of him. And Samuel's like, okay, well, I mean, do you have like another kid? And don't you just hear like, yes, David is out with the sheep. It's just not, don't. And so Samuel says, well, bring him here. And the minute he sees him, he says, this is the one. The Lord says, anoint him. He's anointed to be the king. He takes the horn, he anoints it in the midst of his brothers. Is that interesting? That'll play into the next chapter. He's given the spirit. The spirit of the Lord rushed on him. And then remember, there's these mighty acts that declare a king is actually the king. Next week, we'll look at 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. And uh, he, plot twist, spoiler alert, he kills the giant. And... Uh, and after that, it's funny, the people sing this song. It's throughout the rest of 1 Samuel. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. What's interesting is that David is anointed to be king. He goes back out to the shepherd. Remember when, when Saul needs him to play the music so that the spirit will go away? They say, go get him. Well, he's among the sheep. I mean, David becomes king. He's like, well, I don't, we still have a king, so I'm just going to go take care of the sheep. David does this really good job of being the Lord's anointed, not lifting his hand against another one of the Lord's anointed, the rest of the book. There's this really cool part we'll get there where um, David has the opportunity to kill Saul while Saul's in a cave taking a poop, and uh, no joke. And so instead of, like, killing him, instead of killing him, he goes and cuts off a part of his robe and says, Saul, like, look, I could have done this. David skates this line. But David is no sooner anointed that he's put in the royal court. He's put in the royal court. And, and when he's described, do you notice how, like, they can't stop talking about how great David, I mean, yeah, he's got beautiful eyes, he's handsome, he's ruddy, he's dark-skinned. No, David wasn't blonde and blue-eyed and white-skinned. He's, like, dark-skinned, okay? He's from the Middle East. At the last campus, I accidentally slipped and said he's the kind of person our people are trying to keep out of our country, okay? That's what he looks like. And, uh, and, look, and then look at what it says. He looks like Zach, only darker. And then... He says, a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, I love you, uh, who's skillful in playing. He's a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's prudent in his speech. He's a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. Can't stop talking about how great David is. Do you remember what the narrator had to say about Saul? He's really tall and good looking. A couple of verses later. He's, did we mention that he's really tall and good looking? By the way, he's really tall and really good looking. That's all they have to say. And by the way, this is a, a footnote here too. Parents like it's awesome if your kids are skillful in playing, if they're a man of valor, if they're successful, if they are prudent in speech, if they're a good presence. That's great. But if they're lacking, the Lord is with them. They've got nothing. They've got nothing. We've got nothing. If we have all the skills on our resume in the world, but not the Lord is with them. And why is it then that David, when he plays, does the spirit depart from Saul? Now, if it's a demon, people would say, oh, well, David's singing worship music and it's chasing the demon away. I think that preaches. 
to me, it immediately just shows how the Lord's favor is on David. It shows how when David shows up and uses his gifts, he's the Lord's chosen right out of the gate. It immediately, do you notice what would happen? Dave, everybody would be looking at Saul while he's kind of going crazy and pulling his hair out. And David would come playing, and you know what everybody did? They would stop looking at Saul, and they'd start looking at David. It's just a little feather in David's cap, and that's exactly what happens in the chapters going forward, all the way to the end of the book, one chapter after another. It's just putting a little feather in David's cap and saying, my favor is upon you. This is the one that I have chosen. My favor is upon you. This is the one that I have chosen over and over again. The Goliath thing is a pretty big feather, but everything else. Again, we can arm wrestle about some of this stuff, but what I don't want you to miss is this little line in verse 7. This little line in verse 7. The Lord sees not as a man sees, or a woman, by the way. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Who is worthy to lead us? That's the answer. That's the answer to that question. In 1960, American politics took on a new shape. I think this comes up in Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. For the first time, we had a democratic, uh, we, had a, we had a presidential election that was covered on television. And so here's John F. Kennedy, a Roman Catholic. There had never been a Catholic president ever. A Roman Catholic from out east with like this weird accent running for president, and everybody didn't think this kid was going to do nothing. He was too young, he was too this. And then they televised the debate. And all of a sudden, everybody goes, you know, that John F. Kennedy is pretty easy on the eyes. And most historians say if, if John F. Kennedy's election hadn't been televised, he would never have won his nomination, and he would have never won the presidency. Voters in 1960, voters today, we have something in common with the, with the people of Israel here in 1 Samuel 16. It, it turns out over and over again that just because they're ancient doesn't mean that they're stupid. It seems that we are far too concerned with externals. And that concern for externals has seeped its way into the Jesus people, where we choose our leaders not by character, but by external qualifications. I mean, I, for one, you know, when... when when they say, you know, he's tall and he's good-looking, but don't look at him, the Lord has rejected him. As someone who's both tall and good-looking, I find that a little offensive. <laughs> but you should never assume that the Bible wouldn't agree with you, uh, would disagree with you. But it, it seeped its way into the church. One of the ways we do this is we choose leaders on the basis of competency instead of on the basis of character. So what we do when we go to hire staff, a lot of churches do this, they say, how much competency can we get for our money? And we sacrifice character for competency. We sacrifice. That's not how Jesus builds leaders. Jesus builds leaders by finding people with minimal competency. The guys that he chose to establish his kingdom movement were fishing. Were fishing. No competency, but he saw in them some character. And what he was really looking for was a trajectory, a potential for character. Give me someone who has no idea what they're doing, but who has a humble and teachable heart every time is what Jesus does. It's not about competency. Another way this happens is that we forget that spiritual maturity exists apart from a timeline. A timeline. I was 13, growing up in a church in the area. I just had started taking Jesus seriously. I'm in a conversation with an adult, and I remember the adult said to me, well, what do you think? 
I don't remember what we were talking about, but it was, it was a weighty issue. It was something. And I said to them, I said, well, why are you asking me? I'm a kid. And she looked at me and she said, listen, age is just a number. She said, you could be far more, she was a woman in her 40s, you could be far more spiritually mature than me already at this age. What we tend to do, what we tend to do is forget that spiritual maturity is absolutely disconnected from a person's age. I have met, and in our presence, in our community, are some marvelously mature spiritually 20-year-olds. I've also met, at various places in our community, at other churches, some wildly immature 50- and 60-year-olds. People that when I meet them, I'm like, could you do me a favor and get off my team, right? Because you're not helping the cause of Christ by being whatever hot mess you're being over there. It doesn't matter that you've been in church for 40 or 50 or 60 years. You're making it harder for us. You know what I'm saying? Another way that we do this is we let club mentality slip into the church and we think whoever's been there the longest has the most rights to lead. Another way that we do this is, I watch this happen all the time, by the way, back to the age is not a number thing. People turn 60, 70, and they say, you know what, I've done the work and it's my job to coast. I'll tell you when your retirement is spiritually. It's called heaven, it lasts forever. Okay? In short, it doesn't matter how you look, it doesn't matter how old you are, what you wear, says your 31-year-old pastor who preaches in jeans. It doesn't matter what experience you have. It doesn't matter what your resume says. It doesn't matter what happened in your past. God chooses who he uses by looking at the heart. God chooses who he uses by looking at the heart. That's a, a line an old president of Moody used to say all the time. When God chooses who he uses, he always begins with the heart. Jesus places little kids in the midst of a group of adults, and he says, be like them. Jesus chose 12 men barely out of their teens, and he said, on this rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Jesus was the first youth pastor. Timothy, pastor, Timothy, Paul's protege, pastors Ephesus, one of the most strategically important churches in the early church at the time. And, and he writes to Timothy, he says, by the way, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. The funny thing is, is Timothy grows older with us, Right? When I was in my 20s, I thought Timothy was my age, but now that I'm into my 30s, I, I bet he's about 30 or 31. If you're in your 40s, you think Timothy is probably in your 40s because 40s is still young, and then you hit your 50s or your 60s, and you think Timothy's about your age. Timothy ages with us. No, he says, don't look, let anybody look down on you because you are young, Timothy. Mary, a prostitute, is the first person to preach the gospel. She preaches it to men, and she says, hey, by the way, Jesus is alive. Saul is a religious vigilante, just the side of a terrorist. Just the side of a terrorist. And it is to him that God gives the mission to the Gentiles. Listen to me. It doesn't matter how you look. It doesn't matter how old you are, what you wear. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic class is. God chooses who he uses, and he begins with the heart. He begins with the heart. If you want to be used of God, if you want to be used of God, don't talk to me about your qualifications. Don't talk to me about your training. Don't show me your resume. Don't talk to me about your competency and your skills. Let's, let's look at our hearts. Kyle finishes a pretty heady sermon, and people think, I could never do that. I'm not smart enough. People, I'm not comfortable with doing that. I, I don't know if I could do that. I, I don't care about your skill. I don't care about your competency. If you want to be used by the Lord, offer him your heart. Offer him a heart that when an opportunity presents itself, you just say, sure, why not? Look with me just briefly at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Here's, here's David, shepherd boy. David, the shepherd boy, of all people, the youngest of his brothers chosen to be king. Here's all of these people God uses. And 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 says, From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him this way no longer. The message translation says, We thought we understood who Jesus was. We saw him, but boy, were we wrong. Boy, were we wrong. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen to me. If you place your faith in Jesus, something new is happening on the inside of you. And the Lord sees that. The Lord sees past your outward experience, outward appearance. He sees past the external and sees your heart. He sees your heart. Our job, the gift that we give one another, is not looking at what we can see, but looking at what we can't. Our job is looking past the external into the heart because when God chooses who he uses, he always begins right here, right here. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are kind and gracious. Thank you that our hearts, which are at best quite fickle, so readily used for your kingdom. Refresh us, restore us. Man, Lord, where we need a little kick in the fanny, hook us up. Uh, where we need a gentle invitation into more, offer that. Uh, reform us from the inside out. Look on the, our collective heart as a church, and Lord, our prayers that you'd be pleased. Amen.